I'd now like to call on Mr. Dennis Young, the curator of the Contemporary Art section of the Art Gallery of Ontario, to introduce the speaker for the afternoon, Mr. Young. Um, I was saying that it is a, a particular pleasure for the Art Gallery of Ontario to be associated again with the college, and especially on such a distinguished occasion as this is. And it's my uh, um, great pleasure and honor indeed to introduce to you the speaker this afternoon, Mr. Robert Motherwell, who is in the city, a coincident with the opening of his exhibition at the David Murphy's Gallery. Mr. Motherwell began his career as an art student, uh, like many of you here. But he changed to the study of philosophy and went to Stanford University and to Harvard and uh, ended up, as I understand, in Grenoble um, in 1939, still uh, following the pursuit of a scholar. And it wasn't until the beginning of the war that he returned again to painting, uh, largely under the influence of the Chilean surrealist painter Mata, with whom he spent a good deal of time in Mexico in 1942, 41-42, and he returned uh, to the city, indeed I think to New York really for the first time to live in 1942, where of course the migratory surrealists of Europe had already assembled, and I'm sure he's going to tell us a good deal about that this afternoon. He became associated at that time, as you know, with the most distinguished group of uh, uh, painters in the history of American art, the group that formed the school that um, has grown and become known as the New York School. I won't call it the Abstract Expressionist School because there's a good deal of contention about a term like that, and I think he's perhaps going to talk about that too. He wrote Automatic Poetry with Jackson Pollock, and he had his first one-man show at Peggy Guggenheim's uh, The Art of This Century Gallery in 1944. And in 1965, he was honored by the um, Art Lovers of America by a one-man exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And in between those two events, uh, following his scholarly pursuits, he published two books, one on the uh, painters that he knew in New York in the 40s, and another, the Dada Painters and Poets, uh, in the Documents of Modern Art series, which became, um, it's um, too easy perhaps to say, became a Bible, but certainly became a very strong influence on the generation which was to follow his generation of painters in New York. It inspired, uh, um, was responsible for quite a lot of the inspiration behind the movement that we know of as assemblage or uh, neo-dada or pop art. I should explain perhaps that the last-minute nature of this meeting this afternoon is due to the fact that uh, we weren't aware that Mr. Motherwell was actually 
to be in Toronto at this time until a few weeks ago when I happened to meet him at York University and asked him if he would speak to us this afternoon and uh, he very generously consented to do so. Mr. Motherwell, uh, we really are very glad to have you here and we welcome you.
either on an international side or on a nationalist side. It's a dilemma for all artists and has been a savage struggle among all artists for more than a hundred years now. Um, there's so many things I want to say that it's hard to keep a certain order. Um, In fact, um, the critic of the um, New York Times, uh, when there was a big show of abstract expressionism at the Museum of Modern Art, I think it was last spring, or maybe the spring before, um, writing a long article about it, said that in his opinion, uh, those particular American painters, uh, in many respects, did what Parisian painters might have done if Parisian art, for reasons that remain a mystery, hadn't largely collapsed after the um, end of the Second World War. And um, I, to a certain extent, there's a great deal of truth in it. At the same time, uh, obviously, an American is not a Frenchman, and uh, there were in our efforts some inevitable transformations. Lately, um, I've been editing a <coughs> book on German Expressionism and going through a great deal of material published in Berlin and in Munich before the First World War. And uh, what becomes very clear to me is that the artist most admired in general among German Expressionists was Matisse, who happens also to be my favorite painter of the 20th century, and at the same time, it's obvious that the French Falls are closer to the Matisse than the German Expressionists, but nevertheless, the impulse is relatively similar, so that the uh, one inherits one's uh, ground, one's light, one's environment, one's place, and one may have international ideas, but they are modified by one's particular situation. But that doesn't mean that one is then mainly German or mainly French or mainly American in the same way as we know, with the exception of Matisse and Braque and Leger, most of the masters of the Ecole de Paris were foreigners, Spaniards and Romanians and Russians and Germans. In the same way, among my colleagues in the uh, New York School, de Kooning, um, was a Dutchman, was your age when he came to the United States. Hoffman was middle-aged German when he came to the United States. Uh, Rothko was 10 when he came from a ghetto in Russia. Uh, Newman, I think, was the son of immigrants. Um, Baziotis was the son of Greek immigrants. Um, actually, um, in the New York school, there were very few native-born Americans, very few of English-speaking descent, very few Protestants. So that, um, uh, I mean, what you say, New York is kind of the Constantinople of the Western world, and um, 
in those in the terms that abstract expressionism began during the Second World War was opening its arm to refugees of all sorts from everywhere in the same way that for um, generations before that Paris in its cold but tolerant way had embraced um, people from all over Europe who had come for more spiritual, artistic, sexual freedom. So, I hope I've emphasized that point enough. Uh, now, um, if one takes the problem that one has a relatively thin and localized painting tradition, which was our problem. And I should also add that uh, America, the United States, um, in the 19th century produced Aikens and Whistler and Albert Ryder, who are very remarkable um, painters, the equal almost uh, to anybody in the 19th century apart from the <coughs> French. Uh, we also, in the earlier part of the century, had some very fine painters such as John Marin or an international sculptor such as Alexander Calder and so on. Nevertheless, um, certainly when I arrived in New York in 1940, um, the Whitney Annual, which is a kind of democratic uh, exhibition of what's going on with very little editing uh, and would have perhaps 130 pictures in it each year. I would think in 1940 would have perhaps six abstract pictures and six fanciful pictures of one sort or another, uh, maybe 20 expressionist pictures. And really all the rest would be what we called social realism, which is a painting of um, um, critical of society, or what we called um, regionalism, which is a painting of farms and cities and subways and so on. So that the modern tradition, though it existed there, was extremely thin. And the problem was how to go about it. I remember, for example, um, well, um, perhaps I should go into that a little bit. Um, so I'll have to backtrack a moment. You see, I was a maverick in the group because I was a university-trained person. I didn't go to art schools. Um, I longed from the time I was three to be a painter. But I grew up in San Francisco and um, attended Stanford University. And my father was a very powerful businessman who regarded <coughs> art as an abominable career and um, who moreover thought that I was throwing away any cha <coughs> marvelous chances to make something of myself. I knew no artists, um, 
and I had an instinct from the beginning that painting was something more than just painting, that it was an environmental thing, which is say once I, when I was young, I was a very good tennis player, and um, I remember once at Stanford when I was 17 or 18, after a tennis match, my partner saying he was going somewhere for a drink and would I like to come along? And I said no, and he said, well, I have the impression you're interested in pictures, and these people hunt some pictures. And I said, in that case, fine, and we got in the car and went. Well, it turned out to be the Michael Steins, and I saw the first Matisse's in the flesh that I've ever seen in my life and made an impact on me that to this day I can feel as clearly as I can when I was three in the kindergarten and the uh, teacher on the blackboard with colored chalk um, every day would do what the weather was with um, blue lines for the, um, very in a very mean roll way now uh, Round and oval orange for the sun and blue chalk lines for the rain and so on. And there was something in my heart that would just jump as I would see those abstract lines convey meaning. I felt the same way with Matisse, but what I instantly understood was that just looking at Matisse's would get you nowhere. Um, in fact, this is one of the most fundamental points I would make to students. Uh, that the looking is essential. Looking and copying what you like gets you nowhere. What you have to have in your hands is the um, process and the intent. And what I immediately understood, it is obvious, is Matisse was a Frenchman. He was a bourgeois man who liked colors and girls and sunlight and so on. And actually, I was a bourgeois California who liked sunlight and girls and so on. But I realized that uh, that wasn't enough, that I really should know something about French culture. I happened to be tone deaf, to be a terrible linguist. After being in France a lot, I still speak French like a oriental houseboy because I cannot modulate my voice and it's hard for me to distinguish sounds. I can't recognize the melody, though I've listened to music all my life. So, in the end, I went to France, but before that, um, I collected, I suppose, one of the biggest collections in America of translations from the French, of Baudelaire, and of Malamé, and of Proust, and of André Gide, and uh, André Breton, and Rambo and the whole shooting match, because I also discovered uh, that in relation to modern art, and now I talk about it in its broadest sense, that music and painting and poetry are all can be modern, that the poets talk the most about what modernity is. I should also make clear that here in North America, I don't know how true it is of you Canadians, because it's hard for a stranger to estimate how much you're influenced by the United States and how much by England and how much by France and how much by your whatever is different uh, from all of those things. But I would think in many respects, um, you're not so different from us. Um, now, what was I saying? Uh, 
um, oh, um, in the word modernity, um, <clears throat> uh, you see, now you talk about modern art as easily as you talk about pop art or rock and roll or whatever, you're sort of naming that thing, but not an issue. Uh, Fifteen years ago, <clears throat> or more, I was a guest of the German Republic, uh, which I accepted mainly because I felt very anti-German and don't believe in prejudice, and I thought I should go. <laughs> and uh, uh, something that struck me very much, I was with a party of architects, town planners, a sculptor, um, but uh, people in the arts, it was in times when West Germany was still making friends uh, with the uh, rest of the Western world. Uh, one of the things that struck me was in places like Nuremberg, which was a medieval city, and had been largely obliterated by bombing. Uh, they had to rebuild it. And there became the question, shall we make it medieval again? Which is very possible to do. In New York City, there's a Gothic church by Crown that was really superlative that was done in 1910 or something. Unbelievably good, to the degree that that is possible at all. And one could make Nuremberg believably, especially for tourists, medieval again. There were other people who wanted to um, do it quickly and moderately and in a kind of anon anonymous, conventional, modulist style. There were other people who really wanted to take the opportunity, since the city had been obliterated in many parts, to get somebody like Mies van der Rohe to rebuild the whole city, or Corbusier, or Wallagropius or whoever, and in fact, in one of those cities, I forgot which, I saw a very Mies van der Rohe building, and next to the medieval buildings, it seemed to me to make more sense than something middle of the road, because in its intensity and purity of expression, Ophond, it had more in common with the uh, purity and intention of the medieval thing than um, early 20th century conglomerate had, in my opinion. But um, uh, people would fight, uh, fight each other in the streets about whether should we should be medieval or whether we should be moderate or whether we should be modern. And in that sense, uh, modern art, until relatively recently, has been as... Um, uh, much a uh, cause or an issue as, I don't know what, being a communist or uh, being a royalist or whatever. It's a specific position with specific consequences. And I realized that when there are real consequences in the external world, the whole enterprise becomes much more real to oneself, if I make myself clear. Now, um, so I made French culture real to myself, let's put it that way, including spending a year in France. At the same time, <clears throat> in order to live, because I was totally incompetent, um, I made a 
modus vivendi with my father that if I would get a PhD, he would give me $50 a week for the rest of my life and let me do uh, what I wanted to do. And uh, I more or less proceeded that way, and that's how accidentally I became a scholar. It's also how I studied philosophy, because in those days, uh, the art departments were miserable. I mean, I knew I wanted to learn modern art, and uh, in those days, one was either taught in the academic tradition, or if somebody were relatively enlightened, in the States, one would be <coughs> taught, for example, to paint like Cezanne, which I would think is probably the most complex way of painting ever devised by the human mind, and to present an 18-year-old with Cezanne's problem seems to me incredible. In fact, the complexity of Cezanne's mind to be able to handle all of those relations simultaneously without interrupting uh, them seems to me more staggering than Bach, maybe, because it's more empirically done. Uh, so that um, there was no point in studying painting. I tried literature, but it was Victorian and the novel and so on, and I realized that all forms of naturalism in the way that they were understood then were the enemy. And in the end, I discovered that in American, in USA universities, um, a very nice place to be was a philosophy department. There were very few students. One only talked about ideas. Uh, one became very friendly with the professors. Many of the concepts, such as the nature of the particular versus the universal, or the nature of the tragic, which I spent a whole year on, or what constitutes the aesthetic, or um, the nature of um, value judgments, or uh, even mathematical logic, in the sense that it revealed to me that symbolic structures, regardless of their content, are meaningful in simply being relational structures helped me enormously in that I was able to begin as an abstract painter in a way that none of my contemporaries could, because a, if one begins in the usual way, studying from the model, <coughs> uh, dealing with nature, uh, worrying about political and social and sexual issues, etc., and one simply makes a line on a piece of paper or a color, one has a frightening feeling if one has uh, been reared that way, does this really mean anything? I knew a priori relational structures are meaningful and could begin with absolute confidence. Where, um, as I say, Matisse is one of my heroes. Um, I think the moment that Matisse left the face out in his figure paintings, it must have been a staggering decision for him to make. And most of my contemporaries were uh, faced with um, similar hesitation uh, at a certain moment. Uh, <clears throat> so, now to get back to New York, um, I happen to be uh, very friendly with a Chilean painter named Mata because I was 
studying with Mara Shapiro in New York, who was then the only person in a reputable university teaching a survey of 20th century art, and who realized that I really wanted to be a painter, encouraged me to paint on the side, and realized, because I used to haunt him so much, having no idea how busy New Yorkers are, uh, that I really should be around painters, that I was an internationalist at heart, and the most intellectual, and then relatively young, in their early 40s, artists around were the Parisian Surrealists, introduced me to them, I hung around with them, they accepted me because, oddly enough, most Americans were afraid of the Europeans, or extremely hostile, because American modern artists were regarded as nothing. So there was bitterness, jealousy, poverty, against international acclaim. I mean, the Modern Museum in New York, for example, celebrated all of these people and wouldn't look at us in 1941. But I was, in a way, too innocent to care or even know this, because I hadn't, as most of my colleagues had, uh, spent five or six or seven or eight years on the W, on the public works program for $26 a week, uh, going to an easel from five to nine, and um, so on. Uh, which is to say, um, I, when I think of it now, uh, I blush at my innocence and naivete and how I wandered into the um, jungle that the New York art world is. But uh, among the surrealists, there was one my age, more or less, named Mata, who had originally been an architect and a student of Corbusier, and who also came from a bourgeois background, uh, who had an American wife and spoke English reasonably well, and we became very friendly. Now, I don't want to go into the history of Mata, but let's say in shorthand, he had a kind of Oedipal relation with the Surrealists, and at a certain moment wanted to show them up and conceived the idea, uh, being also indoctrinated with his, by his fathers, that the only way to do it would be to show something newer than they had done. And so he and I um, began to scheme how to do it. Um, I went to Peggy Guggenheim, and she offered um, with amusement uh, her gallery to us for a month. And we originally had the notion of making the gallery symbolic of the 24 hours of the day, and that half a dozen of us would take some hours during the day and make some kind of imagery. It seemed impossible. Because I'd come from the university world, um, I didn't, I knew hardly any painters, and no American painters, until um, I met Baziotis, and we became instantaneously uh, very friendly. But he had been on the WPA, and so when I said, if we're going to do this, because he was interested in this scheme too, who do you think would be a likely prospect? Because most of the people in the WPA were regional or social realists painters, the um, Stalinist pressure on the WPA in New York was fantastic. 
and the abstract painters were in a small corner and largely disregarded, so I'm told. Um, the consequence was that he said there was a guy named Pollock, and that there was a guy named de Kooning, and there was a guy named Gorky, and a guy named Kamrowski, and several others, and uh, that he would introduce me. Um, so, to come back to where I began, uh, for example, when I went to Gorky's studio, whom I think became a first-rate artist, uh, he showed me, and this was not in relation to this project, I met Gorky independently um, through a young artist who happened to admire us both and um, brought us together, and Gorky invited me to his studio. Gorky's studio was filled with the most beautiful Cezannes, the most beautiful 1927 Picassos, uh, and so on. Uh, there were partially his, which is to say they were not Cezannes or Picassos, but so influenced um, that it was not an identity of its own, really. And at the same time, the craftsmanship was unbelievable. And I realized that Gorky's problem, and um, later we didn't like each other at all. He regarded me as presumptuous and young and inexperienced, which I was. I'd been painting one year. Uh, at the same time, um, I was 26 and had seen a lot of the world and thought a lot about painting and had a very good eye and in a funny way knew more about the culture of 20th century painting than Gorky did. But Gorky knew much more about how to make a painting um, than I did. But you say, I then already began to understand some of the processes that were being used where Gorky understood how to make the pictures but didn't understand the processes. Um, de Kooning then was making um, beautiful somewhat Renaissance, somewhat Picasso-esque rose uh, figures. Uh, Pollock was um, very influenced by the, um, um, the Mexicans and again by Picasso. Uh, my work didn't exist, so that uh, I basically could look at this with a certain amount of detachment because all the time in my mind was the problem if we're going to show the surrealists up, so to speak, that there is something beyond their horizon, how are we going to do it? Moreover, a collection of individuals won't do any good, because after all, surrealism was a movement. And uh, if somebody shows that he's extremely talented, that's perfectly okay for him and himself, but that's certainly no counter... Um, reaction against realism, certainly one of the possibilities would have been abstraction, uh, a full-blown abstraction, because Miro, I'm speaking now of 42 or something like that, 41 maybe, Miro was quite suspect among the surrealists as being too involved 
in Picasso's cuisine, as they used to like to call it. Um, but anyway, uh, in going through all of these things, collecting in my mind all the insights uh, that I could, it seemed to me the principles of atomicism were the best chance. Um, atomicism is a lousy word in English because it's um, the noun for automatic. And uh, what it really, and um, it was a theory highly developed by the, um, or a, rather a method highly developed by the surrealists in many different ways, which would lead me to a lecture on surrealism, why they did it. Uh, but the part that we took over and there are a thousand different ways of doing things automatically. The part we tended to take over in idiomatic American would be called doodling. Uh, but this, uh, doodling also means something on a small pad where we began to doodle wall size. Uh, now, it sounds trivial when you put it this way, and I'm in another way demeaning everything. I remember um, one day talking to Pollock when I first knew him and uh, saying that I thought painting was a noble pursuit. And he, in his abrupt and articulate way, said, well, then obviously you should paint nobly. And um, to tell the truth, um, I think one of the things that abstract expressionism did, despite its um, faults, was that it was a rather noble expression when I think of Rothko and de Kooning and Still and uh, Newman and Gottlieb and Pollock and the others. Um, I think it's one word that could be uh, legitimately applied to it. So that one must think in um, referring to doodling um, of something serious, large-scale. For example, this is one of the places that American painting broke with French painting. Was in there. French painting had insisted on being an intimate scale. French painting was made for French rooms, and the French, as you doubtless know, like to, um, as white Russians used to, like to have lots of pictures on the same wall in tiers, so that a picture this size uh, functions very well in French culture, and the majority of Brocks and Matrices and uh, Picassos are relatively uh, small pictures. A picture like Guernica is an extraordinary exception and was a specific commission uh, over a specific political act. Um, so that we did make them larger. Um, we also were involved by chance in ideas of the sublime. Um, we were probably less sensual because North American culture 
from Tanamora to the north is less sensual than Western Europe. Uh, but maybe in a certain way, the, um, Um, if more crude, um, also more, um, one's heart laid bare, so to speak, but not in an exhibitionist way, but in an effort to get rid of all the baggage of the past, and of civilized culture that was between oneself and um, uh, the immediacy of a complete experience. Would you say in certain respects, uh, maybe the affinity was closer with um, the caves at Lascaux or with um, African art? And now I'm not talking about uh, visualness, I'm talking about um, a tremendous effort to uh, make an art that was not an object, that was not a representation of something nameable, but which nevertheless uh, was violently anti-constructivism, anti-design. In fact, I think the disaster of the present moment in art is that interior decorators are dominating everything because the art being made now is perfectly adaptable to interior decorators' purposes. Uh, we were trying to make the um, opposite, um, um, or not the opposite, something different, something to which that would be trivial and irrelevant. And, um, um, as I'm sure the German Expressionists felt before the First World War, as I'm sure the Fauves felt, as I'm sure the Cubists felt, as I'm sure Mondrian felt, um, and is different from uh, Dadaism, essentially. The Surrealists grew out of Dadaism and retained a strong negative quality that um, the abstract expressionists did not have in the sense of um, being absolutely committed to painting, where the Surrealists were absolutely committed to Surrealism, of which painting was a minor aspect and very often potentially, in their eyes, the enemy, just as um, to many environmental artists or pop artists or so on, Painting is the, right, in the sense of a canvas and a brush, uh, is the enemy. Um, but I don't know, it all sounds like words. I wish I could uh, um, make... Um, make more vivid to you is that it was um, a real military campaign that every country has to undergo regardless of the results 
if the artist has, if the art is to be um, uh, serious. Because in the end, um, uh, what human beings have in common is much profounder than the regional differences. And what is, and though regional differences are interesting and curious, and in some ways fascinating, there's never enough expression of what is deepest in the human being and um, in 20th century, we're increasingly bombarded to a point uh, that is almost unendurable uh, by every kind of sensation uh, that is relatively trivial. I mean, it's a, a real, you know, when I see people going around looking for excitement, I can't help reflecting to myself that most of my time is spent blocking away excitement so I can feel what I really want to feel. Um, and abstract expressionism had something to do with that. Now, I should also say that um, most of my colleagues would have, would disagree with a lot of what I say. They, a lot of them uh, had such hostility toward Europe. They really wanted abstract expressionism to appear like a virgin birth or uh, like um, Venus arising from the sea in the shell, all fully formed. Uh, all of them universally detested surrealist painting. Uh, used to deny that there was any surrealist um, connection whatsoever. But there was in, in automatism, but the automatism was the automatism of Miro and Masson and um, Quay and that sort. Not at all the automatism of Dali, which is an automatism of a free association of ideas rather than technique. But even in the case of an artist like Tanguy, who uses a highly, in quotes, academic matter of painting, the original little figures in those dream dreamy landscapes are made from doodles, which is to say, with a doodle, you can leave it as abstract or draw it, bring it back as close to the everyday visual world as you like to. You can turn, you can turn a doodle into a portrait of your mother if you want to go that far, or you can turn it as far away as um, the highest um, abstractions that we know. Um, now there's, uh, there's something I'm leaving out. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, why don't um, I quickly show you some slides so that of my own work, I don't have any of others, uh, there'll be something to look at and then maybe we could have a little discussion uh, afterward if you want or it's hot and sticky in here if you want to leave uh, uh, I won't feel offended uh, uh, you're starting at the wrong end is it loaded that way? 
Okay, well, we'll start backwards then. All right. And, and just keep shooting them. This is from my last show in New York last year. Uh, this was um, 10 years ago. It's 20 feet long, called Africa, and was made by automatism. Uh, these are a series of pictures called Elegies to the Spanish Republic, which was to my generation what Vietnam is to yours. Uh, this is called the Homely Protestant. And um, <clears throat> I, I, um, when I finished it, it was done in 1948 when I'd been painting five or six years. Uh, I knew it was a figure, but I didn't know how to call it. And I like um, titles that may have some association but are not misleading. And then I remembered something from my Surrealist days. I was only with the Surrealists for a couple of years. And when they were stuck for the title, they would very often take a book, but it had to be a book that meant a great deal to you, and put your finger down at random. And so I took Joyce's Ulysses, opened it at random, put my finger down at random. It came on the words, the homely Protestant. And I thought, of course, that's what the figure is, and moreover, it's me. <laughs> now, these are 1970 pictures again. The one on the right belongs to Greenberg. The one on the left is in the Cleveland Museum. Um, this, um, these were shown at the Palais de Beaux-Arts in Brussels in 66. Um, <clears throat> I gave a lecture last night in Georgia, and uh, obviously the man who ran the slides didn't put them back right, so that's why they're in no sequence. I didn't have time today. Okay. It's a small sketch, um, which I like very much, but traded for a 17th century Japanese zone picture, which I like even more. Uh, <clears throat> and some people have been puzzled at the relative formality of um, my recent work compared to the general expressionist tendency to me, the differences are not so great in the sense that I think when my pictures are most successful, and I now begin to think most modern pictures that I like, this is true of, it's, um, it's regardless of whether the forms are fuzzy or hard-edged or what, uh, they should look more or less as though they were done instantaneously. Well, not instantaneously, but it's a continual process that just started and finished, uh, like making love. And there shouldn't be the sense that the guy went off for in the middle for three days and then came back and finished. Uh, <laughs> uh, in that sense, um, the other thing is, all my life, until relatively recently, I started with disparate elements and desperately struggled to um, organize them. In fact, when my show was in London, um, an English critic wrote very perceptively that when a picture of mine succeeds, it's a miracle, meaning 
Meaning it's a miracle that I was able to do it. I so often can't. And he was quite right. And uh, I think it's um, because of starting with disparate elements. So part of what I've been doing recently is starting with a field that is already organized and then making it as disparate to the degree that I want to. And what I've discovered is oriental painters have known for centuries that once you start with something organized, you want to make it very little disparate, or you need very little disparate to have it feel the way one would like to, if I make myself clear. Okay. <clears throat> Those are some trends. Uh, it was very sweaty in Georgia. <laughs> Next, please. Uh, the one on the right, which I like very much, you can't see it well here because um, uh, the orange is done stroke by stroke with the most subtle nuance, but on sized canvas. I think unsized canvas is both perishable and too easy. Um, and the lines are done with uh, French charcoal. And when you see the picture in the flesh, there's a very painterly quality with a real charcoaly quality that is part of the essence of the thing. Uh, also, with the lines not connected to the top, it's not as much of a window as it is in some of the other pictures, but makes the space both infinite and finite, which is something that I like in pictures if the infinite thing is uh, not at all dominant. Okay. Uh, the picture in the center there was done at a terrible moment in my life, and um, it has some words from a poem by Paul Elowar, um, which mean, um, um, I can't read them from here, but in the daytime uh, at home, at night in the street, which was how I was living when that was painted. Next. That's an aqua tint and uh, <clears throat> way off in color. The color is the color of the Valencia orange. Next. That's upside down. Uh, that's... Um, the very first of the Spanish Ologies, done in 1948, and was originally called, at, or still is called at five in the afternoon, after the refrain from the poem of Borges to the fallen bullfighter. But people used to say to me, I saw the most beautiful picture of yours the other day, it had something to do with cocktails. And, uh... uh so I began to search for other titles. Next, please. I mean, the world is really like the Marx Brothers. <laughs> this is a studio, the best studio in many respects that I ever had on uh, 86th Street and 3rd Avenue in New York, and was a pool hall. You can see the... Um, uh, those squares on the floor where the pool tables were. It was enormous, 5,000 square feet. 
and um, it was it was the second floor, and to my despair, they tore it down and built a one-story building, which has something to do with real estate tax laws. It was more economical for them to have a one-story building than a two-story building, so they tore down my studio and made a one-story building of stores, and I lost it. Next, please. Now, uh, this is one of um, uh, about 600 pictures called the Lyric Suite, made on Japanese rice paper after my Museum of Modern Art show when, um, no, just before it, but when I was very, as they say nowadays, uptight. It's a terrible strain to have a <clears throat> major show for a year. Scholars go through all your papers and ask you questions, and uh, you have to decide out of thousands of works which ones you want, and sometimes they like ones that you don't like, and the whole thing is a terrible interruption if one is basically a withdrawn and a loner, as I am. And because I felt uptight, um, I was... Then the two artists I was closest to were my wife, naturally, Helen Frankenthaler, and um, David Smith, who was our best friend, had a key to our house, and um, often stayed with us, was like a brother. And both of them are prolific artists. And one day I thought, feeling very uptight, forget everything you know, uh, forget the whole shooting match, just put some stuff on the floor and work on it. So I went to a Japanese store, uh, not for that purpose, to buy a toy for a friend's kid, and I saw this beautiful Japanese paper and I bought a thousand sheets and made up my mind. This was in um, the beginning of April, 1965, that I would do the thousand sheets without correction. I make an absolute rule for myself. And I got to 600 in April and May, uh, when one night my wife and I were having dinner and the telephone rang, and it was um, Kenneth Nolan in Vermont um, saying that I should come immediately and I said, what's happened? And uh, he said, David Smith's been in an accident. And I called the garage. I had a very fast um, Mercedes then. And they sent the car over. My wife threw some things in the bag, and I drove at 110 miles an hour to Albany. And um, he died about... 15 minutes uh, before we got there, and I never uh, resumed the series, and in, forget, in fact forgot about them. Uh, and then one year I had them all framed, and um, I like them very much now. Um, I should also say that, they have, that I have painted them, and they have painted themselves. 
I'd never used rice paper before, except occasionally as an element in a collage. And most of these were made with very small, I mean, very thin lines. And then I would look in amazement on the floor that after I'd finished, it would spread like spots of oil and fill all kinds of strange dimensions so that their half my gesture and half what ink and rice paper uh, do to each other. But in the sense that something, that I like something now done in one felt swoop, I think these have the quality. By themselves, they don't seem so much. When you see hundreds of them together, the infinite variations are interesting. Next, please. Uh, there, there are many different series of them and different colors and so on. These just happen to be four slides I had. <clears throat> oh, well. Uh, this is another whole different series called Beside the Sea. My summer studio is directly on the water with a very thick concrete bulkhead against the sea, which is an 800-foot tide twice a day, and when it hits against the bulkhead, it does with great fury, and spray uh, splashes up, and when I was negotiating to buy the shock that I converted into the studio, there was a three months where the people couldn't make up their mind, and I used to go and stand there and watch the sea come in and, and contemplate what I would do if I ever finished it. And I had the idea of making spray. Now, some people think they're very erotic, too. That, that's the deck there. And um, but what I discovered is if you just tried to paint it, it didn't work at all. And, and then if you did it with more force, you would break the paper. So finally, I got five-ply uh, rag paper glued together so strong that I can't tear it with my hands and use the brush like a whip with the full force of my arm and shoulder and torso. And then it began to have the quality that I wanted. And I realized that, um, as Art says, nature is marvelous, but not its imitations. It's its processes that are marvelous. Go on. That's the studio there, and there's the bulkhead I'm talking about. This is taken at low tide, but at high tide it comes nearly to the top, and water is very heavy, you know, it's like throwing mercury against it. <clears throat> Go on. I think the greatest thing that every artist contends with, that's the shock when I was contemplating getting it. I think the great thing every artist contends with is timidity. Um, all of us are too timid. And uh, the worst mistake everybody makes is thinking uh, maybe this is too much. And one's utmost to the degree that seems subjectively almost insanity which isn't at all, it's impossible for the human mind not to organize what it's doing, is just barely enough. 
but the difficulty is for oneself to recognize it. Another person can say, you're beginning to break through, but to oneself it seems like chaos, and it's only months afterwards one thinks, why, didn't, why was I so afraid of chaos? If I make myself clear. <clears throat> Go on. I mean, now I wish I'd used an Argentinian bullwhip for them. <laughs> That's the first collage I ever made in the first year I was painting. <clears throat> I have a certain affection for it, primitive as it is. <clears throat> uh, this picture began as an elegy, was done in Spain. And uh, I used to be um, very interested in bullfighting and took my wife, who had never seen one, on a day as it turned out where the three greatest fighters in Spain were fighting, Domingan and Ordinez and so on, and also the Queen of Persia, who had just been rejected by the king because she was barren was present, and of course bullfighting is a royal sport, and the bullfighters outdid themselves till the um, uh, center of the ring, which is yellow ochre sand, was a pool of blood. And Spanish bulls are very small, cold black, with tiny joints, so they turn too fast they're apt to trip over very quick, um, gleam like coal. I was painting this picture entirely in formal consideration, so to speak, adjusting um, amounts, edges, curves, rhythms, etc. And it was only long afterward that I realized, and consequently I called it Iberia, that I'd painted the underside of one of those black bulls against the sand of the arena. Next. This was very early work during the war, the Second World War. Um, and this is a drawing that's one of a long series. Uh, there was a time I wanted to buy um, Degas statue of bronze, which was then very inexpensive, but I couldn't raise the money of a pregnant nude, and looking at it and wanting it so much, I suddenly made a lot of drawings of pregnant nudes, some of which uh, were very markedly resemblant, and this was the very last one, which is the belly and the leg, and the most removed, but nevertheless in a funny way, feels the most pregnant to me. Next, please. That's a pregnant woman holding a child. That's a collage from a show I had in Paris. And that's called the Golden Fleece. 
<clears throat> if those had been in sequence, they would have been in different stages of the same picture. Um, I think that's sufficient. Thank you. Mr. Motherwell um, will stay a bit longer and answer questions. Um, I'm sure there will be a lot of questions. If anyone, um, maybe we should take just a, a, a one-minute break um, so that if anyone wishes to leave at this point, they can, and then we'll go on for a little bit. I think um, I'll ask Mr. Motherwell to, to, to come up here again and just simply field these uh, curves as you throw them. Um, I'm sure after a lecture touching on so many profundities, there must be a great number of questions. If, if no one else has, I've got about 500. Mr. Motherwell, would you like to... Please, please do. Um, okay. um, I just, I just want to say uh, one thing, which is. Oh yes, Miss um, Motherwell. Uh, since we're recording this, um, people who ask questions are asked to stand up so that we can get the questions recorded. This is, and you've got something, something like this, one of those sinister directions. Yeah. Microphone. I'm sorry. Um, well, let's begin. Well, you were looking for something to go beyond surrealism in the early 40s, and uh, in the area of automatic matter, uh, you were uh, you're considering some of the things like doodling. Now, around 42, Max was in New York, and he had techniques for swinging a can, tin can, from a, a string that would be filled with paint. He did a couple of, uh, of uh, major paintings with that technique. Do you know if, if there was any direct influence on finding people in your group? Uh, I, I know there wasn't, uh, because I saw him do it. And uh, uh, and uh, at that particular moment, I didn't work at all that way, and um, um, I think most, with the exception of myself, I would say. Um, I mean, it is my opinion uh, that my colleagues detested his work. In fact, uh, he always liked me because I, it was so unusual for an artist in that uh, group to respect him as I did. He's also a brilliant writer and I think has the most beautiful titles of any artist of the 20th century. Uh, 
Uh, he did it on Cape Cod, as a matter of fact, where my summer studio is. Peggy Guggenheim had rented a large house. They were married briefly. And uh, I, he was, they were only there about three and a half weeks when he was arrested by the FBI uh, because it was during the war and he was technically a, a German alien. So the uh, two years before that, he'd been in a <coughs> great show in Paris called Modern Masters of French Art, and uh, <coughs> was, of course, immediately released, but like all technically uh, enemy aliens, was not allowed to be near the um, seacoast. In fact, uh, I was then married to a Mexican actress, and um, she w used to ride home to Mexico and uh, about that thing. And um, there's much excitement, and my wife wrote in uh, Spanish to her mother. My wife was a childish brigade by dough type. And, uh, <laughs> and the uh, uh, FBI visited us too, and uh, <laughs> uh, I bet she, she wrote about it as though one might that uh, a chicken had laid three pink eggs or something. Uh, I should say that, <clears throat> uh, to be more serious about what you're implying, <clears throat> not what you say, in the same way that many of the Americans were anxious to suppress any connection with Europe, the French, who are um, the real Caesars of the European art world, have desperately tried to show that we were merely the offspring. And Max Ernst is one of the people being used for that purpose as um, early Maçons are. But again, <clears throat> I would say, I would guess among my colleagues, without exception, their favorite painter, European painter, would have been Picasso or Matisse or both. Well, um, I just wanted to know, uh, what is your feeling or relationship towards avant-garde art in New York today. Like, how do you relate to kinetic light, etc.? And uh, do you feel what, for instance, that during the period of the 50s, when you were working, there was sort of a crest of uh, American art? That's been a very real problem for me because I do lots of things besides painting. I paint about 80% of the time. Otherwise, I'm an editor for a publishing house. Um, I give lectures. Um, and 
um, most important of all in this context, I've served on the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation that gives the um, art fellowships so that every year I see 500 Canadian uh, United States and South American uh, artists and have one of the boats and whether they're going to get a greatly wanted um, um, fellowship or not so that it's a very practical problem for me to be as tolerant as just as uh, um, fair as I possibly can be um, and which is not in a funny way difficult for me uh, intellectually I happen to come from a long line of Scotsmen who must have all been judges or something because I was raised in a atmosphere of harsh fairness along with Irish hysteria on my mother's side and uh, but I, and to put it as easily as facilely as I can what I look for is what seems to me indisputably authentic regardless of its mode of expression but it's also evident that I'm deeply committed to painting in the literal sense of a brush and a surface and uh, to warmth of feeling uh, to um, non-elaboration but non-simple-mindedness that I actually there's a very which I haven't been able to go into a very complex a background of references in my own work, simple as they are, so that the more cool, as one says nowadays, the less kindly, uh, the more it becomes an object, the more it could be shown in a president's office or in a bathroom or in a cafeteria indifferently the less feeling I particularly have for it which doesn't mean that the Guggenheim Foundation hasn't awarded many white artists plastic artists etc fellowships they have but I certainly feel personally uh, much more definite about it I should also say because I think it would interest you young people that in my opinion um, watching this over the years uh, there's a very marked change uh, among young artists away from painting and away from sculpture as it has been generally regarded much more toward new materials toward gigantic sciences one, sculpt, uh, one sculptress or woman sculptor uh, last year uh, who got a fellowship, uh, one of her entries was 1,200 feet long. Um, but I would think um, <clears throat> there's a marvelous American philosopher, I must say, named William James. And 
uh, he used to say that in any given historical moment, reality seems like a wall, but a wall that the more you observe it, the more there is some place where it is conceivably can be penetrated. And I think this is absolutely true and differs in different historical moments. I think the most adventurous spirits of an age tend to find where that crack in the wall is, so to speak. My guess is that in 1970, if one is 22, the crack is not where painting and normal sculpture are, but maybe much more movies or happenings or uh, carving up the landscape or whatever. I also equally believe that painting is an irreplaceable experience. So that if, artists, if contemporary artists, young contemporary artists do something else, it is something else. In the same way that when one sublimates the sexual impulse, it's not the same as sex if I make myself clear. And in that sense, I think there also will be a permanent endurance of painting, but there can be whole periods, centuries, in among the greatest countries in the world in which painting very nearly disappears. I think with the exception of the Far East, where it's had a continuous tradition, but under present conditions, I suppose it will be wiped out in China, uh, or maybe already has been. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, I also wish youngsters Godspeed in that I think the most adventurous people should go where the adventure is, even if it suddenly makes me, who ten years ago felt like part of the advent guard, so it may feel like Bonar. Yes. Um, as, a, as an art historian and also as a painter, uh, are there any schools you could recommend that would have a really good interaction between both uh, studies, the study of uh, art? As a, as a discipline and a study of art is something to do? I can give you a comic answer. Um, uh, if you buy today's New York Times, which I uh, read in the poem coming up, there's um, quite a long piece about the new art school in California founded by, with Walt Disney's money. Uh, uh, but um, uh, pointing out that they have, uh, that the faculty there believes that all the arts are interrelated. I don't mean in the sense that we all know that somehow poets and musicians and painters have something to do with each other, but that they really want to crisscross everything, that painting students will be also dancers, also making movies, also flying to the moon or whatever. Uh, the, 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 this is the, um, going to be the policy of the school. Also, outside New York City, um, 
Governor Rockefeller's favorite project is being built, which is a first-class university that is going to be devoted to the arts and uh, around a great quadrangle with some of the best architects in America building the buildings. And uh, one building will be painting and sculpture, another will be movies, another will be dance, another will be... Uh, music, another will be rock and roll, and so on. And I'm sure <clears throat> in that university, which will be completed in two years, and which is only um, 25 miles or 20 miles outside New York City, uh, there will again be the kind of interpenetration you're talking about. Uh, I personally am somewhat skeptical about art schools, except as... Um, uh, stalling one's parents or playing for time, which is a, um, I, I think schools, um, I mean, I think it's the nature of the situation uh, that students are too, no, I shouldn't say students, uh, the whole situation is too much um, an artificial feeding process like uh, chickens being fattened for the market, and in this case where there is no market. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think one has to go out and take what one wants. And I'm, by that I mean learn what one really wants and uh, what one really needs to know is what is relevant to one's own purposes. Uh, you see, my father, for example, devoted as he was to California, wanted me to stay in California, but when I said I wanted to study philosophy uh, in graduate school to gain myself more time, uh, he said, his first question was, what's the best art school in the world? And I said, at this moment, Harvard University. He said, you go to Harvard University. And, um, you know, businessmen have their awful qualities, but they also have some marvelous qualities of uh, seeing what the point is. And I would say to any of you, uh, smell out, which is all one can do, where the action is that it shocks you. And according to what it particularly is, and what it particularly is, is all that counts, do your best to associate yourself with that place and group of people, which is often not easy. I bring it, please. Uh, a little, yeah. I've never, I've never liked Vermeer, for example, and I, and I was delighted to read in uh, several years ago in the most learned art history journal, uh, called the Art Journal, in fact, uh, that he used a machine uh, to make his pictures. But I used to wonder there's something about them that um, goes against my grain. And um, they are generically a different kind of painting. They're lots, uh, most, con most contemporary art I don't like. 
at the same time, there's no non-contemporary contemporary art that I do like. Uh, I should amplify that a little bit by saying that most people who think they like painting don't. A great deal of painting is made for people who don't like painting to be able to say they're enjoying their painting and this is what they like. I mean, it's its specific function and is made by people who also don't like painting but think they do. I mean, if it's honestly made, as, for example, in the United States, Andrew Wyeth, I imagine, honestly makes painting for people who don't like painting, but who do like a myth about America. What? No, um, I paint like somebody who's been hit by a sledgehammer and uh, can just barely function in a wall of pain and clumsiness and density. You, you, made, you made a remark earlier about timidity and about fear of chaos and it reminded me that a number of the painters that you knew uh, in the 40s were undergoing some sort of psychoanalysis and it interests me to ask you whether you feel that that experience uh, con contributed uh, um, in any sense to the breakthrough that did happen in New York at that time in terms of this fear of chaos? Um, that's not an easy question to answer accurately. <clears throat> um, one has to have grown no, I was about to say a contradiction. I was about to say one has to have grounds by faith, but of course what faith means is a belief without grounds. But let's say, um, uh, let's say if one has a faith, it's helpful if there's something reinforcing to the degree that we felt that there was a subject matter and there was, however you want to put it, invisible or indescribable or intangible the fact that some of us were interested in psychoanalysis though too many resisted it really nearly everybody is dead partly because they do it you know, in the way that earlier I said that I knew from the study of logic that um, abstract symbolic structures are meaningful. In the same way I knew, I did my undergraduate thesis on O'Neill and psychoanalysis, 
I know that there were meanings um, uh, not conscious. I mean, I never had any question about it. Pollock knew it too. I think we were the only two really interested in analysis. I can't think of any others. Baziotis, for example, was interested in flying saucers. Uh, it was also characteristically, until this present generation, um, <clears throat> an alcoholic generation. Every major uh, American writer of the 20th century, or nearly everyone, has died of alcoholism. Nearly all of my generation of painters died of it directly or indirectly or committed suicide or died accidentally, probably under the influence of alcohol. This was also true in France. The two most promising in France were the fact it all seems more programmatic. All of this was done in uh, the most crude, primitive way, and most of my colleagues who were much older, most of them were 10 or 15 years older than I was, so that I was in my 20s and they were in their 30s, and had taken a horrible beating from the United States, from Europe, from the backgrounds, from everybody and everything, used to look at many of my ideas with great hostility, indifference, etc. But I then had, which I no longer so much have enormous enthusiasm and enormous belief in the possibilities of the future. In fact, when Harold Rosenberg and I <clears throat> made a magazine together, we called it Possibilities. Uh, it was something very different um, from the atmosphere nowadays <clears throat> in the sense that people are cooler now. Some art historians now talk about abstract expressionism as the last flare-up of romanticism, whatever that means. Certainly it was romantic in that there was an enormous amount of egotism in it and a real hatred of being anonymous. And in fact, the latter, the last 10 years of its history was largely the various artists disowning each other. Which um, characteristically happens when your best friends are also your greatest competitors. Because um, I think our guests and students and staff have all clearly expressed what I was going to say, but on behalf of everyone here and all those concerned, we would like to express our warmest and most grateful thanks, and in this instance, we really feel that we have a very much more intimate concept of something we all found terribly exciting. And thank you again very much for fitting us in. Thank you.